welcome to Decades From Home, a podcast about the weird and wonderful side of living in Germany. And all without saying, wenn wir hier nicht gewinnen, dann treten wir ihnen wenigsten den Rasen kaputt. I'm Nick Houghton, 40percentgerman.com, and I'm joined by my co-host Simon Jumpers for Goalpost Maddox. How are you? I'm, I'm good. I, I, I'm excited, I have to say. This is a, a new height for the podcast. Uh, I mean, we are we're joined this week by the most incredible special guest, the definitive English language voice of the Bundesliga. He is ESPN's lead commentator for the Bundesliga, the DFB Pokal, La Liga and the Deutsche Fußball Liga. He is, along with Lee Dixon and the Parson Stuart Robson today, the commentator of hundreds of thousands of daily FIFA games played across the world. We are joined, incredibly, by Derek Ray. Hi, guys. I'm a little bit flabbergasted by that wonderful introduction, but thank you very much. It's great to be on. I think we are probably all kindred spirits in terms of what we're going to be talking about here, but yeah, delighted to be your guest. Uh, so obviously, Derek, you've been commentating on games since you were 19 years old. Your mm -hmm. first game was a Scottish Premier Division game between Kilmarnock FC and Dumbarton uh, after David Francis suffered a knee injury. Mm -hmm. um, do you remember that game uh, particularly well? And how did your pro debut go as a 19-year-old? Yes, I remember it as though it were yesterday in many respects. And I think it went pretty well. I'll tell you the story. It all really happened in a flash. I was a student at Aberdeen University at the time, studying German and international relations. And I had started doing some freelance work for BBC Scotland, but didn't know how far it was really going to go. But I could tell that they thought that I had some potential. But um, what happened was David Francie, who you mentioned, was a legend in Scotland. If you think about the voice of Scottish football at that time, it really was David Francie on the radio at a very distinctive delivery. And he had helped me a little bit. I mean, he had sort of taken me under his wing and encouraged me. I'd written to him when I was first 12 or 13 and sent some tapes to him. And to cut a long story short, got involved with hospital radio in Aberdeen, my home city. But little did I think that because he had this knee injury, an old knee injury, which was going to keep him out of the Kilmarnock-Dumbarton game, I was going to get my chance. So made the journey from Aberdeen down to Kilmarnock, it's about three and a half hours, uh, and did the game. And then um, it went pretty smoothly. It was a 3-0 win for Kilmarnock. I didn't know how well they thought I had done until I got back home. I took the train from Glasgow back to Aberdeen. And when I got into the house, uh, my father said, oh, there's a message. Could you call the producer at Radio Scotland? So I called the producer and it was pretty short. He said, well done today. He said, we thought you were tremendous and we'd like to offer you a second gig which will be in a few days' time, and it will be England against Scotland at Wembley. Oh, wow. Wow. <laughs> and this was for a 19-year-old, you know, who had just my God. basically turned professional. That was my first ever professional gig, and my second one was going to be England against Scotland from Wembley the coming midweek. So that's how it all started, and... Here we are, you know, so many years later. I was 19 back then. I'm in my mid-50s now. And that's what I've been doing for my whole professional life. Been very lucky. Amazing. That's absolutely incredible that that was the second game as well. I, I'm, I'm having cold sweats imagining it. <laughs> Getting that as the second, Me too, when I think about second it. job offer. That's incredible. 
But you must have made an absolutely incredible impression for that uh, second gig to land. That's incredible. Well, I th- as I say, I think you have to be very fortunate in life and certainly in broadcasting. Mm. And that's something I've seen time and again. Uh, it, it is the luck of the draw and being in the right place at the right time. And I got my big break at 19 and then got that other big break at mm. 19 to do England, Scotland. And um, I, I stayed uh, on the staff of, of Radio Scotland for five years before embarking on other projects and got to do so many different things. But yeah, luck is a big part of it, I think. I'm curious, though. It's not often you hear about a, a commentator being subbed off for an injury. So is it like mm. common that like, sort of little injuries like that will, like a knee injury doesn't, well, I suppose it depends how bad the knee injury is, but it doesn't usually affect the voice. <laughs> so No, it's a, it's a good question. I think what had happened there was that David was nearing the end of his career and, you know, he was actually to retire a year or so later mm-hmm. and he wanted to spend more time at home and the World Cup was coming up in Mexico. So, you know, this wasn't the biggest gig of the year, Kilmarnock Dumbarton. Obviously, England, Scotland was, <laughs> was pretty close to the biggest gig of the year, which came next. But yeah, I mean, I know f- having actually suffered an injury quite recently, I know on the one hand, yeah, you say it doesn't affect the voice, but I know just hobbling around mm. venues it became quite difficult because sometimes you've got to go to the tunnel area, from the tunnel area up to the commentary position and you're climbing up stairs. You know, this was in, these were in the days before you had lifts taking you everywhere. And <laughs> so I think that was part of it as well, hmm. you know, for, for a, a, a very senior commentary figure who'd been around for a while and was nearing retirement. I mean, this, this does lead me to, this is more of a, a fan service question. My father is, a, uh, my stepfather, sorry, is a well, he's uh, Falkirk born and bred. Ah. And, and I'd feel remiss if I didn't ask you whether you'd uh, been to Brockville, the former uh, Falkirk Stadium, because it was, it was my first football experiences were through Falkirk. And it was, it was ah. like going to the football in the 50s, but it was yep. the mid-2000s. <laughs> And I'm wondering, I mean, yeah. I'm not sure if they even had a place to do the commentary, but I, I mean, did you ever encounter Brockville? Did you ever come across Falkirk FC? Yes, I did. And delighted to hear that you come from a family of Bairns, Nick, the Bairns being the, <laughs> yeah. the nickname of, of Falkirk. Bairns, for anybody who doesn't know, Bairn is a, a Scottish word for kid, for young mm. person, essentially. Mm. And yeah, Brockville is an interesting one because if you talk to fans of a certain age, there's a kind of a reverence for Brockville because it was as old school as you could possibly get in Scotland. You know, the old Brockville, there was nothing glamorous about it. It was terracing everywhere. It was a bit dilapidated Mm -hmm. in in places, but it had a soul, Mm -hmm. you know? And when it got knocked down and they moved to the new stadium, yeah, it was tidier and plusher, but it didn't quite have, doesn't have the same soul that Brockville did. So yeah, some of my earliest reporting experiences with Radio Scotland were from grounds like Brockville, Mm -hmm. like Capolo, which is the home of Greenock Morton. Right, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Douglas Park, which is now New Douglas Park, but uh, the old Douglas Park, Hamilton Ackies, Dunfermline, mm. East End Park. So places like that. That's really where I learned my trade because, you know, for every England-Scotland game, there's a Falkirk <laughs> against Dunfermline match that has to be covered. And, 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 and honestly, that's where you learn to be a commentator, a reporter. Mm. That's where you learn the sort of the fundamentals um, because you have to work harder with, with games like that than you do with, say, England-Scotland. Yeah, I mean, I guess the football quality might be a little less, shall we say. I'm I'm worried now that if I go back home, my, my, my stepfather's just going to clip my ear for saying anything negative about <laughs> fall kick. Um, but yeah, well, thank you so much for that. 
You've called thousands of games across the Bundesliga, MLS, Edivisa, the Champions League, Campeonato Brasileiro, Serie A, Scottish Premier League, Europa League, the Premier League, Ligue 1, La Liga, FIFA World Cups, UEFA Euros, the Olympics. Are there any leagues left that you haven't commentated on that you're itching to? Um, interesting question. I'd have to ponder that one for a second. Uh, not really. I, I think I've been very fortunate. I mean, I will say the one thing that I haven't done, I haven't commentated on a major final at an international tournament. So I haven't commentated mm-hmm. on a World Cup final or a European Championship final. I've done quarterfinals, I've done semifinals, but I haven't done the final itself. And you have to be really fortunate because there are a number of my colleagues uh, who are in a similar position. They, they've never quite been in the right place at the right time for that. And part of it with me is that uh, I'm freelance, so I don't work on staff for any one broadcaster. And as a rule, companies you know, for understandable reasons, they like to promote their own staff people and give them the most prestigious gigs. I tend mm. to work freelance, as I say, and that means that I'm available to work for a number of different broadcasters. It means I rarely miss an international tournament, but I don't get the the absolute pinnacle in terms of broadcasting the, the finals of the World Cups or the Euros. But I've done the Champions League final on many occasions. Mm. That was my bread and butter with ESPN. No, I mean, to be honest, I don't really think about that too much. Um, I'm just very grateful for the fact that I get to do what I love. And you mentioned the Bundesliga there. Uh, that has been my passion going back to, you know, young days in Aberdeen. We can probably get into why that's the case. But it's really only in my 40s and 50s that I've been able to spend a significant amount of time focusing on that as a commentator. And now it's the most important thing that I do. I mean, I guess it's definitely worth getting into that now. I mean, you mentioned that you studied German at university in Aberdeen. So obviously your your connection to the country is 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 being with you for a very long time. So what started that connection to the country and why the Bundesliga? Well, it started when I was seven in 1974. And that was my first recollection of the World Cup. And of course, it was in West Germany. And I'm of an age where, you know, for me, the idea of West Germany and East Germany is still very real. You know, uh, younger people don't quite know what you're on about when you talk about that. But in 1974, you had West Germany hosting the World Cup and you had East Germany playing against West Germany in the World Cup and actually beating them. Mm-hmm. The only mm-hmm. team to beat them en route to West Germany winning the World Cup that year. But I was obsessed with this World Cup. I watched every game, it seemed. And I was a curious young child in Aberdeen. So I I was forever asking my father, we'd watch the games together, you know, uh, tell me about Dortmund, tell me about Frankfurt, tell me about this city and that city. And of course, I would, you know, go on to the look at the globe that we had in the the living room and spin it around and look at all these German cities and then open up the encyclopedia. I know I'm dating myself with all these things, globes and encyclopedias. (laughs) Nowadays, nobody needs to bother with such things. But it was sort of the, the stepping stone for me. So with this interest already part of me. A couple of years later, as you know, at school uh, in Scotland, same as in England, eventually you move towards studying a language. And Mm. uh, in my class, it was German. And I was very happy that that was the case. And I found that I really liked the language and it Mm. kind of spoke to me and it seemed to come quite naturally to me. And I saw with my fellow pupils, it didn't really come as naturally to many of them or maybe the interest level just wasn't there. But I became a bit obsessed with it, to be honest with you, to the point where 
living in Aberdeen, and if you can picture the geography, the North Sea in the old days would have been the, the highway for a city like Aberdeen, you know, very much mm-hmm. a coastal city, a maritime city. And the trade was done with cities like, you know, places like Amsterdam and, and Hamburg in Germany. And of course, because I lived in Aberdeen, we had this radio link with Hamburg, so we could actually listen to German radio because, you know, there's no mountain in the uh-huh. way. You got this, uh, this pure radio signal traveling from Hamburg to Aberdeen. So my nightly... Uh, diet of radio was from NDR, Norddeutscher Rundfunk, from Hamburg. Wow. And I would sit and listen to this for hours. So I became very knowledgeable about German news and politics in the early 1980s. Uh, I could tell you a lot about German Schlagermusik, about pop music from the, <laughs> the early 1980s. Oh, I, I can tell you all the hits of uh, 1982, 83 in Germany. Um, <laughs> but probably most importantly of all, around that time, I discovered what the Bundesliga was on radio. And you know, began to listen to the Bundesliga Konferenz and some of these great German voices of the time, some of whom I got to meet uh, later mm-hmm. in my early broadcasting years. You sort of get the picture here. Um, a young guy from Aberdeen moving into his teens, loves football, loves broadcasting, was doing some amateur broadcasting, loves German, and sort of found a way to, to make mm-hmm. it all come together. And I think the pinnacle at that point was 1983 when Aberdeen drew Bayern in the quarterfinal of the European Cup Winners' Cup. Aberdeen went on to win the Cup Winners' Cup, beating Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Bayern and Real Madrid, no less, uh, in the knockout stages to to lift a European trophy. Couldn't happen nowadays. And uh, I was broadcasting that game for Hospital Radio as a 16-year-old, and um, I wrote to the Bayern press office, got a letter back after my my letter. I'd written saying, I would love to be able to sit down with my little tape recorder and talk to one of the Bayern players. Got a reply saying, well, come to the team hotel and we'll see what we can do. There was no sort of firm commitment. I spent eight hours in the team hotel watching the players wander around and trying to approach them and they would ignore me until finally at nine o'clock that night, I approached Uli Hoeneß, wow. and he walked past me, and he sort of, you know, kind of waved, waved me away. He said, what, what, what do you want? And I was, you know, talking German to him, and obviously, maybe that helped, I don't know. Paul Breitner was one of the great players of the time, walked by at the same time, and Uli Hoeneß said to Paul Breitner, Paul, go with this boy, get him out of my sight, and talk to him for a few minutes. And um, <laughs> so I got this interview with Breitner that I still have on tape somewhere on, a, on an old cassette. And he gave me about half an hour of his time, which would be unthinkable nowadays before a big mm. European game, the idea of a, a modern pro talking to a 16-year-old want-to-be reporter. Um, but that was kind of you know one of the early memories. Paul Breitner, man. Yeah. Oh, that's, that's incredible. Yeah. <laughs> what a story. That's unbelievable. World Cup goal scorer and... Yeah. Um, Pseudo Maoist, and oh, yes. probably I think he's got the shortest tenure as the trainer for the German national team. It like lasted like some like twenty four to forty eight hours because he couldn't. <laughs> form, no one would form a backroom staff yeah. with him, so he wasn't he wasn't able to. He was an independent thinker, very much, yeah, and, yeah. Right, and, and very heavily involved <laughs> on the political side of life too. But uh, yeah. no, I have to give him credit. He gave me a, a very thoughtful interview, and uh, I'll be forever grateful. Well, you've brought us back to commentary, thank God. Yeah. Um, I, was, I was worried <laughs> Simon was sending us off into, into German culture a bit yeah, too soon. Yeah, sorry. No, no, it's all right. It's fine. It's to- totally fine. Um, my next question is rather um, about the, the ease or difficulty of commentating. And, and we were curious about what is it that can make commentating on a game easier and inversely what can make commentating quite difficult? 
for you? Well, I think, first of all, you have to do your homework. And I think the better prepared you are, the easier the job is. You know, I think that is just common sense in any walk of life. So if you've done your preparation and you go into a game feeling that you're on top of the subject matter, you can recognize all the players, you have the facts at your fingertips and in your brain, then everything flows much better. The other thing too, of course, is that the standard of football helps greatly. And I always say that something like the Premier League in England is is actually very easy to cover for a commentator relative to, say, the second tier in Scotland, as we were talking earlier about Falkirk and, mm-hmm. and that aspect of it. Um, when a game flows... And it's all happening in front of you, and things are happening fluently. The passing is good. As a commentator, you, you're simply sort of blending in with this, you know, happening in front of you. If the game is choppy and it stops start and it's one team mm-hmm. giving the ball away, the other team giving the ball away, that's hard for a commentator as well. So all these things come into it, and you never quite know. This is the great thing. You never quite know going into a game how it's going to go. And I think you learn with years of doing it, not to be too harsh on yourself. That's difficult because Mm -hmm. I know talking to other commentators in the business who've been doing it a long time as I have, we are our own harshest critics. And we sometimes have, you know, stupidly sleepless nights over things that we have no control over. You know, something goes wrong and uh, maybe it was our fault. Maybe it was somebody else's fault, but we sort of beat (laughs) ourselves up over this. And, I always think it's a bit like a referee. I've spoken to referees about this, and they go through the same process. They might have had a really good game. They might have done one thing in the game that was wrong, and that's what people remember. And it can be like Mm. that for a commentator a little bit too. But I do think we have to sort of pull ourselves back from it and tell ourselves all the time, we are talking on an unscripted basis for two hours, you know, Mm -hmm. with the best will in the world. You know, try it, you know, say, and, and we're doing it here in a podcast, but say to somebody, you know, just talk for two hours and see how fluent you can be and see if you're going to misspeak somewhere. See if at mm. the end of the two hours, you're going to say something that you wish you hadn't said. You yeah, know? of course. It's not easy, yeah. um, but that is the job and we love it. And, and I certainly, you know, I can't imagine a day coming um, whereby I don't, I don't have that passion for it. It's quite common in Germany, certainly with terrestrial TV uh, when they're showing the football, certainly with international tournaments, that there'll only be one commentator. Yeah, is that something that makes your blood run cold? The idea of there only being one commentator is it is it more difficult when it's just yourself doing it, or is it? I, I would have thought it was. Well, obviously we've got Simon. Simon's got me, and I've got Simon, so it's quite useful <laughs> yeah. in that respect. If I'm feeling off, then he can be on. But I mean, with regards to having a co or color commentary, is it easier when isn't there's two of you, or is it more straightforward when when there's only one of you? Um, it's one of those funny ones. If you were to ask me that question uh, in German, the answer I would give to I would give to you is, uh, and you know what I'm talking about here, is Jein. You know, is, ye- <laughs> is, yeah, is yeah, the classic exactly. yes and no. For anybody who doesn't speak yeah. German, Jein is one of these classic kind of well, yes and no. Um, yeah, it, it's easier and more difficult um, with regard to both disciplines. And what I mean by that is, I started when I did TV commentary for the first time. Obviously, I began in radio and had a co-commentator for radio. But on TV, we never had a co- commentator in the 1980s and the games we did were mostly for highlights but sometimes you know live um, without being cut down Mm -hmm. and I think you learn 
doing that an awful lot. You learn how to discipline yourself. And so I've always had that in me, uh, the idea that you work alone. And even uh, these days with the Bundesliga, I would say 90% of the games I do for the DFL, that's the, the world feed for the Bundesliga, the DFL feed, they have uh, co-commentators um, with me. But there are occasions when it's just me solo. Just depends on the game and when it is, and you know how important it is uh, in in the eyes of the producers. And sometimes when you're working alone, you kind of have that little bit of extra time to be able to pace yourself. So that's the advantage you have working alone. You're able to kind of say, okay, just go slowly here and be, you know, be measured and bring this in, you know, in good time. When you're working with somebody else, you're conscious of his or her time and, mm-hmm. and the, the timing has to work as a double act. So that brings a little bit of extra stress. However, the upside of having a co-commentator is that you can divide the load. And the co-commentator mm-hmm. um, should be a specialist when it comes to things like tactics and technique, having played the game. I haven't played the game. I've watched it a lot down the years. But I can you know, never be a substitute for somebody who's actually played the game or coached the game mm-hmm. at a high level. So it, it kind of swings and roundabouts, I would say. And there are advantages and disadvantages. I think on balance for people watching and listening, I think it's better to have two voices because I think Mm -hmm. um, one voice for 90 minutes, you know, can get a bit tired Um, from a listening point of view, I'm talking here. And so I think if you have that variation and hopefully a a partnership, and that's what it really is with a co-commentator, you you evolve into a partnership, then that serves the the viewer better. I was shocked the first time I, I saw that there was only one or listened and there was only one commentator and there would be like pauses of up to 40, 45 seconds yeah. where there was no commentary. And I'm like, is he gone? And then the, the, the voice would come back in and I was always quite shocked by by like these sort of big gaps, you know. I think the German style has always been a bit different and it's only now that we're starting to have co-commentators on German TV. You you might have heard a um, good friend and colleague of mine, Stefan Freund, who's mm-hmm. been the co-commentator on RTL for their coverage of the Europa League last season together with mm-hmm. Marco Hagemann. And they're very much a partnership and, and I think quite similar to how it's done in English language. But it's an evolving process in Germany because, you know, certainly for most of the time on TV, it has been, you know, one commentator doing everything, but I think on the whole, talking less than counterparts in English language. Yeah, that was noticeable. There's less of, and I mean, this sounds kind of negative. It's not really intended that way, but like kind of the chuntering of the commentary, where it's like there's always has to be if they the, the narrate everything that's happening in yeah. English, and there seems like there's more comfort with just stopping and and like we'll enjoy the football and then we'll say something that's pertinent rather than it feels like there's a lot more research going on in the English game because they've got all tip bits and little bits of information or little facts about oh well his mother's in the crowd and sort of like trying to keep the sort of the conversation flowing and I always find that as an interesting cultural approach. I think that's what has changed a bit if you were to go back to the 1980s when I started Mm. TV commentary in the UK was a lot more like TV commentary is in Germany. Um, mm. There wasn't this endless chatter and it was very disciplined. And I remember we used to get these written edicts telling us, if you have nothing to say that adds to the picture, don't say it. You know, th- th- there is no, there are no <laughs> prizes for using words here, you know, and you will not mm. be criticized or penalized for saying nothing. So the idea was that the commentator on TV, as distinct from radio, because on radio you are the event, but the commentator on TV should only be able to enhance the viewing experience by, you know, pointing out something that the viewer 
can't see for him or, or herself. And I think we've got away from that art a little bit. I think TV commentary has become a bit more like radio commentary now. Mm. And one of the skills is to try to, to not be radio-like. And, you know, if I listen back to some of my games, I'm, I'm critical of myself at times, you know, when I, when I look back and go, he didn't need to say that, he didn't need to say that, mm. you could have cut that by 50%. And, and I think mm. that is the rule that we probably all should live by much more. Less is more on TV thinking more of moments that you've seen whilst commentating so what's the most amazing moment of individual footballing brilliance that you've seen or commentated on there have been a few but I think I have to give this one to one of my favorites and and a player who was very good to me as a commentator Ronaldinho back in the 2000s and there was a game I was covering for ESPN they had the rights to La Liga at that point and I was the main commentator for La Liga and Ronaldinho and Barcelona, a great team, a team that was getting stronger and stronger, pulling away from Real Madrid, went to the Bernabeu and absolutely destroyed them. And Ronaldinho scored this goal. It's worth just you know looking it up. I'm sure you can all find it uh, online. And it was one of those typical Ronaldinho-esque goals where he you know just sort of starts dribbling and beating player after player after player and then whacking it into the net. And of course, it's one thing for this to happen at the best of times, but at the Bernabeu, at the home of Real Madrid. Mm-hmm. And the reason why, for me, it's so special is that it's one of the few times when I've seen Real Madrid fans and almost the whole stadium standing and applauding, standing and applauding wow. yeah. the great hero of the hated Barcelona, you know? And that's how good it was. And I remember at the time just thinking, this was sort of as Messi was emerging as well, but Ronaldinho was the king at that point. Messi was just the the sort of the young prince coming through. And mm. I remember at the time thinking, we'll be hard-pressed to see anything like this again. You've got, you got to remember mm-hmm. this moment and um, and being at the microphone for it. So I, I think uh, I hadn't thought through that that answer, but that's the one that immediately springs to mind. Well, I mean, he, he might be the answer to this next question as well, <laughs> uh, which is, what's the best player you've ever seen live? He's, he's a good shout for that, I yeah, guess. Yeah, he, he's definitely in the conversation. Best player I've ever seen live. Um, yeah, he'd have to be in the conversation. Obviously, Messi would have to be in the conversation. Obviously, Ronaldo would have to be in the conversation. But I'm, I'm going to give this one to Maradona um, because uh, I am sort of a child of the Maradona era. You know, we all mm-hmm. have our heroes growing up. I mean, Cruyff probably was my, my first real football hero internationally, 74 World Cup in West Germany. Mm-hmm. But I lived right the way through the Maradona years from him scoring his very first goal at Hampden Park in Glasgow uh, and wow. seeing that uh, to you know all the other great heights that he scaled as a player you know it's sad obviously how it ended and you know mm. he, he's he's a great loss to to the football world the fact that he's no longer with us but I think I'd have to say Maradona who I was lucky enough to see multiple times live and to commentate on as well and so he would get my vote but but Alan Shearer second though right <laughs> <laughs> Alan Shearer, I don't know, is quite is quite making the uh, the top the top five on this one now. Oh, I think you've broken my heart. Sorry, Derek. sorry. <laughs> Just being honest. <laughs> we've seen recently more and more young British players making the move to Germany. So we've, of course, Jaden Sancho, who's now back in the Premier League with Man United after an incredible few years with Dortmund. Uh, Jude Bellingham is lighting up the league uh, with Dortmund and his price tag just keeps going up and up and up. Uh, Wales, Rabi Matondo, who unfortunately has now left the Bundesliga. We've got uh, Hertha Berlin, have John Joe Kenny, 
uh, Augsburg have Rhys Oxford. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we've just had the new addition of Werder Bremen, Ollie Burke, yeah. uh, has just uh, signed as well. So much stronger British representation in the league now. So I guess the question is, what advice would you give to a young British player who decided to move to a German club? Well, I've been saying for a number of years, uh, I think it, it does... British players generally a lot of good to change the environment and to do so at a young age. I I look at what Scandinavian players have been doing for a couple of generations now, and that is kind of improving themselves by moving at a young age, learning a language, learning new circumstances, new living arrangements, and challenging themselves a little bit. I've always had a feeling that it's a bit too cosy in the British football world. It's a Mm -hmm. bit too easy to just say, yeah, my aim is to go and play for a championship club and of course you'll make lots of money doing that and it'll be competitive and of course the crowds will be big. But have you really opened your mind to the world by doing that? Because the great thing about the football world is that it it does involve pretty much every country. You know, it's not like some of these other sports Mm. that are you know, six or seven country affairs. People talk about rugby and I enjoy watching rugby, but it's not really a world sport, you know? It's not a Mm. sport that has the reach that that our sport has. And um, so with that in mind, I I think the Bundesliga falls into this. And, you know, those players who you mentioned, Simon, who have made this move, I think for the most part, have realized that it, it was a good move for them, both developmentally as human beings, as well as as footballers. And I think the other factor is that if you take England, for example, and you look at the opportunities in England, there aren't great opportunities at a young age. You know, there are opportunities to play um, at academy level, to maybe go on loan to the championship. If you're really good, maybe to go on loan to another Premier League team. But if you're with with a big Premier League team, you've got to ask yourself, what is the pathway here? And there have been players who finally have made it. We wondered if Phil Foden, for example, was going to to make it. You know, it looked for a while as though maybe comparing and contrasting him with with Sancho, because he obviously had taken Mm. the German path. We wondered if, you know, Sancho had got it right. Foden had got it wrong. Okay, it's worked out for Foden, but there are not too many for whom it, it works out. So, so I think it, it really is a no-brainer to be thinking about other opportunities. And it doesn't get much better than going to a country like Germany, where you know you're going to get a really good football education. Owen Hargreaves, for example, you know, Bayern star mm-hmm. of the past, um, grew up in Canada, but England international. I've worked with Owen on broadcasts. He said it was the best decision that he has ever made to go to Bayern as a teenager and to learn the Bayern way and in the hardest German school Mm -hmm. of them all. And I think Mm -hmm. that still holds good. And, you know, it is a short career and you do have to sort of make every season count and every decision count. But I, I don't think players regret it when they make that move to Germany at a young age and, you know, who knows what the, the pathway will be beyond that. But uh, yeah, it's encouraging. And I think we're only going to see more of it. Like Jaden Sancho was the first big like movement. I know there was like one or two players playing in other leagues, but it would be like a Michael Owen or a David Beckham playing the latter stages of their career at Real Madrid. But like Sancho went to, was it from City? I think it was from City to Dortmund. Yes. And then like a nominal sum was like 11 million or something ridiculously small or 15 million, I can't remember. And he, he flourished there. And then you just started seeing more and more yeah. young players going. And I, I think about... Um, Abrams at, at Roma and players like that yeah. who are who are in the prime of their careers now moving to other teams. I really think it's a fantastic, and even if you're a young player or whether you're an older player, it's like there's something classic football about it. Seeing 
English-speaking football stars playing for major European teams because it felt like there was a big period in the 90s where that didn't really happen that much. And Yeah, it, it's, a, it's an interesting point because, you know, I remember when I first started taking an interest in Hamburg, for example, Kevin Keegan was playing for them, you know? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so yeah. so, so yeah. he, he yeah. made that move. And then a few years later, Tony Woodcock was playing, you know, for Kern. And mm. um, so, you know, that was kind of established as a, as a possible pathway, but it didn't really push on much from there and hasn't until recent years. But I think more and more players are seeing that it only benefits them and also just the cultural aspect of it, you know, going to a country like Germany, experiencing the passion of German football. And, you know, I, I'll be the first to, to make the case for, for German football to be the most passionate football anywhere in Europe. And certainly the attendance figures in normal times, obviously during the, the pandemic, mm. it's been different, but in normal times mm. speak for themselves. So, yeah, I think on all fronts, it's, it's a win-win situation for a player who, chooses to go to Germany. Jude Bellingham, we mentioned mm-hmm. there, you know, I, I think he made absolutely the right move in going to Dortmund mm-hmm. when yeah. he did. And he's become one of their leaders at an incredibly young age. And I'm sure he will end up back in England at some point. But he's probably mm-hmm. thinking to himself, yeah, if I hadn't made this move, where would my career be at this point? Maybe it would be, yeah. you know, just as advanced. But I think he made sure that he's getting the most out of his talent by going to Dortmund when he saw that opportunity was there. I mean, you mentioned as well that it is a short career and it's something we see with Bundesliga teams where they seem to equip their youngsters better for the eventuality that, one, the career might not work or at the end of it, they have something they can do. And it seems, in especially in Premier League Academy, just getting to the championship or becoming a squad player is sort of, that's enough. Mm, yeah. uh, and education doesn't seem to be that much of a focal point. But it does seem that clubs have looked at Germany and gone, okay, this is an important part of the development of our young players. Uh, and it has changed, uh, which is yeah, very good news uh, to follow the German model a bit better there. Totally agree with, with what you've said there. And, you know, I, I hope attitudes are changing. It used to annoy me when I was working in Scotland. I went back to Scotland to work for BT Sport for a few years in the, the 2010s. Mm. And, you know, it did seem to me that the element of ambition or the extent of ambition shown by a lot of good young players was to secure a move to a championship club in England and to, mm. you know, increase their wages by a significant amount and, it, you know, do very well out of football. But I kept sort of saying, well, what's the what's the goal beyond that here? You know, and yeah, yeah hopefully it's changing. Uh, so he talked about the atmosphere in the stadiums and the stadium experience. So I guess we also definitely have to ask which German clubs have the best fan experience. I get asked this quite a lot. And it's funny, my answer will differ according to the day, according to the mood I'm in. <laughs> uh, it, it, honestly, I, I think that this changes all the time. But I'll give you a few mm-hmm. that I I think, you know, for me are, are really special places. And one is Frankfurt that I think sometimes gets overlooked and I think doesn't so much get overlooked now because of what happened last season in the Europa League. And -hmm. I think people saw for themselves, you know, people went, uh, people saw on their TV screens the atmosphere in Frankfurt and just went, wow, you know, this is, uh, you know, to use the German expression, Gänsehaut pur, you know, this is just complete, Mm -hmm. you know, goosebump situation. 
um, hairs standing up on the back of your neck. And I've thought that for a long time. Whenever I've gone to Frankfurt for a game, I thought, this is, this is really mm -hmm. special. This is highly <laughs> charged atmosphere here. And um, I think now people are noticing because they've had success on the European front. So Frankfurt would be in my conversation for now. I have to mention Kern. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm, I'm kind of an adopted Kerner in terms of my, my loves, in terms of my own passions. And I always think that uh, you have to go to, to Kern. You have to go to Kern Müngersdorf to really appreciate community and this kind of coming together spirit mm -hmm. and just you know the, the feeling in the stadium when that anthem is played which of course has its roots in Scotland with the, the old Loch Lomond song um, with German mm -hmm. words um, now or Kirsch words uh, that mm -hmm. is just a, an experience beyond belief and people tell me that they say oh my goodness Kern um, they won my heart you know doesn't matter how well mm -hmm. they played just to, to to experience that is something special so those two um, definitely stand out for me uh, I'm going to give you one um, from lower down the, the pyramid and oh, yeah great. I'm going to give you Darmstadt so we're, we're going back to, to okay. Hessen and you say well why Interesting. yeah why Darmstadt to me Darmstadt is just like a trip back to the 1970s and 1980s. Now, they're, they're doing up the stadium, so it may change a little bit. Um, but I, I think it, 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 it really it has echoes of the past and people go there because they really care about their team. And, you know, again, you wouldn't be going there to, to eat prawn sandwiches or, or fancy food or anything. <laughs> You're going there because you love your local team. It's an extension of, of community. So, so Darmstadt, absolutely. I think St. Pauli, I have to mention as well, <laughs> because uh, that is just, uh, uh, I don't even know how to, how to start describing it. That is just <laughs> a, a, a passion festival from, from start to finish. And the extent to which people care, and it, it has a socio-political element as well there with St. Pauli, mm -hmm. which you can't get away from. And I think it would be foolish for somebody to, to talk about St. Pauli and, and not talk about the political element. But, um, you know, that that is part of what makes that club stand out. So um, Frankfurt, Köln, Darmstadt, St. Pauli. And, you know, the fifth one really could be you know, any team on any given day. So on this particular day, what mm -hmm. am I going to throw into, into it? I'll, I'll give you Union because, uh, again, they are... Oh, yeah, choice. Yeah, yeah they, they, are, they are different. They are a bit polarizing, though. I think it's an interesting one because in Germany, I think the, the discourse around Union is a bit different than it is in England, for example. In England, they're sort of spoken of as this sort of pure club that they're the antidote to, mm. to you know, bad modern football tendencies. But uh, in Germany, they're... they're they're not sort of treated as that quite as much. They're not treated as quite as special. But of course, they are unique because they, um, you know, the, first of all, the walk to the stadium through the the forest there in Kopenick, you know, that's uh, that's something enjoyable. They have that at Frankfurt as well. That's one of the things I enjoy is the the walk through the the city forest on the way to the the stadium in Frankfurt. But um, mostly terracing and very old school and extremely passionate in Kopenick. So yeah, Union uh, part of that list today but if i revisit it tomorrow i'll come up with five other ones <laughs> <laughs> well yeah i mean nick's a uh, nick's an augsburg fan and i'm a schalke yeah, yeah. fan so i, I think well, we can safely say that schalke has is going to win that <laughs> yeah schalke would, would, would could easily be in the in, on that list augsburg I, I, not I, so much I, I like going to augsburg <laughs> but i wouldn't i wouldn't put them on that list no 
I mean, they're passionate. They're passionate <laughs> yeah. fans, but I mean, I think the state. The, the problem you have is the stadiums outside the city. And That's right. It's a bit of a, a, a trek, and yeah, I mean, the beer's nice. Um, so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sorry, I didn't want to slam <laughs> Augsburg. I've got to live here, so I've got to make sure that, it, that I'm okay. So you guys are all right, you know, you're fine. No, you, you're very lucky to live in a beautiful city. I will say that. Uh, it's yeah, a gorgeous it's, city. That's that that very true. Yeah. Um, one of the other aspects of of German football that I think people don't realise until maybe they're in the stadium is the the sort of ultra culture mm. or the ultras, the the super fans that are in the stadium. Uh, and they have a lot of influence over the teams. And, and recently we've seen um, Hertha Berlin vote in a former yeah. ultra to be their president. And it's kind of, that's hard to see that happening uh, when we think about sort of, well, not so much more, more hooligan culture in Britain. Um, I'm, I'm loath to necessarily tie ultras to hooligans so tightly, but mm. there is that connection and they would use that word themselves. But um, I'm wondering, what do you think about the sort of fan relationship uh, with their clubs? Um, they're often considered the the truest part of the club. They're the consistency in the club with fans and owners um, changing. I mean, do you think it's a particularly special or different relationship that fans have with their clubs in Germany? I think it's a completely different relationship. And I think understanding that relationship is at the heart of understanding German football culture. And I think, in all honesty, fans from many fans from other countries don't quite make the effort to understand it. You know, Kai Bernstein, you mentioned, you know, who was part of the active fan scene for Hertha is now the president. And, you know, that's no small feat that that, that has happened. Mm. Um, you know, it's many years after the fact, but still it's, it's very noteworthy. I, I think that the big difference is in England, fans are treated like customers. And in Germany, they are decision makers. You know, that's mm -hmm. the, the crux of it. As a member of a German football club, you have voting power and you can elect somebody like Kai Bernstein as your president. You don't have that right in English football. I, I get the feeling more and more fans are tolerated rather than embraced. And I just mm. think it is a, a huge difference. It's not a, a, a small trifling um, difference. I, I think it, it's something that makes German football special. And we can't really talk about this without talking about 50 plus one. Uh, again, mm. if people don't know what 50 plus one is, the idea that uh, an oligarch can't come in and take control of a football club because you're not allowed to have um, more than 50% of the, the ownership stake in a club. So uh, and some people say to me, well, you know, German football is letting itself down by having this because it means that there are fewer financial opportunities for people to come in and invest. But, you know, you guys know this and hopefully people around the world are discovering it as well. Um, football clubs in Germany belong to the wider community. They are extensions of wider community. They are not playthings for rich people. And you don't hear fans talking about, you know, this kind of what I like to call this, um, you know, my dad is bigger than your dad kind of thing. You know, my, <laughs> my, my club is richer than your club. Nah, 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 nah. Mm. We've got more money than you. And, uh, you know... I don't. I'm very uneasy when I hear fans talking about football clubs' money uh, as though it, it's their money. Well, forget it. It's not your money because the financial structure in a country like England is such that it's never going to be your money. It's not treated like your money. It's um, it's a rich organization or, or backer deciding what to do. And and frankly, as a fan, your views are kind of irrelevant, really. Um, mm. 
there's not internal democracy within the clubs. So I think you have to know that. People have to know that going in and they have to realise when they go to a German stadium and the atmosphere is red hot and a new fan to Germany might go, wow, this is absolutely the template for what I would like to see. You have to remember that the reason why it's like that is 50 plus one is because of mm-hmm. the internal democracy and the way German football is set up. And so that to me is very important. Yeah, I mean, as a, as a Newcastle fan, I'm kind of ultra aware yeah. of the, <laughs> the the sort of whims of ownership and what it's, well, now we've got a, a new owner, but not necessarily any any better. But yeah, yeah. I, got, I mean, when, all I think about, when, certainly when I first came to Germany and we sort of learned the football culture and I was looking at my team that was owned by someone who didn't want to, want to invest any money and I was just like, my God, what the Newcastle fans would do with 50 plus one. But yeah. Yeah. Um, Move, moving slightly away from German football, we uh, um, Simon picked up this little tidbit of information that you're an ambassador for Berwick Rangers FC. Mm, yeah, and yeah, uh, yeah we, we were really interested by this, and like we're qu- quite curious about about how it is that you sort of develop this connection with with this particular football club. Well, it's sort of an informal tie, but it's something that manifested itself in the early part of the pandemic. And if you think back to the spring of 2020, we were all kind of in a world of uncertainty. We didn't really know what to do with ourselves. We were mostly home. We were trying to help people. And I thought, well, how can I how can I help people? And obviously I'd you know, spent a lot of time in my home country, Scotland, broadcasting. I was back three years or away from Scotland three years. And I, I just put a tweet out one day saying, um, I don't know how much I can help, but if there's a, a lower tier Scottish club that might like some voiceover work done, I'm happy to lend my voice wow. to the, the project, uh, whether wow. it's just yeah, a, yeah. You know, a, a promotion for tickets or, or something, something that might help the community in, in your part of Scotland. You know, I'm, I'm open to it and I'm home. I'm twiddling my thumbs like everybody else. And so a few teams got back to me, but Berwick sort of took it to the next level. They had me do a series of of different voiceovers. And I've always found Berwick quite intriguing because as you know, or maybe not everybody knows, um, Berwick is in England, but just over the border, you know, <laughs> just <laughs> over the border and no more. Um, yet Berwick Rangers have historically always played in Scotland, you know, for good reasons, because geographically it would have been quite difficult for them to travel to, to play against <laughs> other English teams but much easier to to play against Scottish clubs. And, of course, responsible for probably the biggest upset of all time in the Scottish Cup when they defeated the more famous uh, Rangers in the late 1960s. So they have that sort of romantic side to them as well. I also have a very good friend um, of, of long-standing who is from the, the area, from Eyemouth, actually, just on the other uh, Scottish side of the border, but who's a Berwick Rangers fan. And so they said to me, um, could, could, you, um, could we call you an ambassador. Would you be interested in doing some work? And I said, well, you know, I don't have an awful lot of time, but I'm more than happy to <laughs> to say that uh, I, I support what you're doing and getting the word out. Mm-hmm. And they'd been relegated, of course, out of the, the Scottish senior setup, um, you know, into the Lowland League, so the non-league. So they're now trying to get mm-hmm. themselves back into the, the Scottish uh, senior leagues, into the, the SPFL setup. And I thought, well, it's the least I can do. And um, it's actually helped them a little bit because a couple of uh, followers on Twitter, one in particular, has committed financially to the club and sponsoring players. Wow. And, uh, so, <laughs> so, so you know, if, and I will say, if, if something like that helps in a very small way, then I'm I'm delighted to to put my name to it. And um, 
Yeah, come on, the wee jers, as they call themselves. The wee jers, yeah, I haven't heard that nickname in a long time. The wee uh, rangers, yeah, Berwick rangers. Yeah, I, I always like. I've always found Berwick a really funny place because yeah. when I travelled to Falkirk or back, I would would drive and would stop in Berwick at the services. Yeah, and if I fell asleep in the car and you wake up in Berwick, you, you honestly have no idea which side of the border you're on because no. it's like the guy in front of you is Geordie, <laughs> the guy behind you is Scottish. You know, the person in front is speaking something that's akin of, to both of both of those dialects that's the funny thing because the accent in Berwick and you, you know this as, as Nick as somebody from not too far away from there the accent mm. in the town is this sort of mishmash it, it's, yeah, it, it's, it's, yeah. it's sort of you know half a sentence sounds Scottish <laughs> the other half sounds a bit Newcastle and it, it's um, yeah, yeah it's a really interesting uh, uh, part of part of the world I think and then someone from Sunderland turns up and it all just spoils <laughs> oh, it you can say that. that I'm not going to say that I'm not going to say that <laughs> yeah I'll go. it's alright I don't think we have any Mac listening um, anyway <laughs> you're renowned amongst commentators for speaking five languages and for being a real authority when it comes to the correct pronunciation of player names um, but could you tell us which player's name caused you the most trouble when nailing the correct pronunciation there was a player remember there was a player a few years ago and he ended up at Everton and I was covering English football at this point and it it's not that it's a hard name to say but it's a hard name to say when you're commentating and speaking quickly. And it was uh, Bilya Letinov, you know. Oh, okay, So, yeah. you know, try getting your... T- it doesn't sound that difficult, but when you're saying it in the heat of battle, that's one you mm. really have to <laughs> kind of get your tongue around. Um, the great David Francie, who you mentioned earlier, one of his early tips, um, which he gave me, which I still adhere to to this day, um, was practice um, vocal exercises. And the one that he gave me, which I still, still use... Mixed biscuits and tea, mixed biscuits and tea, mixed biscuits and tea. Say that over and over and over and over again, and it helps your verbal dexterity. Um, The other one he had was the valiant Italians buried their valuables in a canal in the valley. You know, say that. (laughs) That's that's fantastic. Because because it's got some other little sounds that when you say them quickly, they can be problematic. But once you kind of, it's it's kind of training. And and he had a bit of a dramatic Mm. training. You know, he'd he'd, um, gone through drama school or drama classes and I, I've never had formal drama training but uh, I was always grateful for those tips and, and I do that with names so that if there's a name that I'm not that I haven't used before I, I do sort of you know say it out loud several times mm-hmm. just to make sure that the the vowels and the consonants match my way of talking because sometimes that can be the biggest issue. And we do also see that sometimes the pronunciation of a player's name changes for the Premier League for yeah. example it just becomes an anglicized yes. version uh, of it uh, which can be quite sad and that's something that I've sort of been um, at the heart of campaigning against as you you probably know mm-hmm. um, what I found frustrating down the years is that I've covered a lot of leagues that are not the Premier League and my colleagues and I who cover these other leagues or have covered these other leagues, we've gone to lengths to to verify pronunciations either by mm-hmm. talking to the player or talking to colleagues who have spoken to the player or getting a definitive recording or talking to a native speaker. But mm-hmm. it seems that all that goes out the window when a player moves to the Premier League. <laughs> and uh, yeah. I, I get, I'll be honest, I get a bit irked when even a colleague will say to me, oh, well, this is how we're going to say it. And I will say, well, what mm-hmm. gives you the right to say this is how you're going to say it? It's not... That's the wrong way to put it. It's not about how we're going to say it. It's about 
how how is it said? How does he or she say his mm. or her name? Mm. We don't really have the right to impose a pronunciation on somebody. At least that's my opinion. Well, it usually changes, yeah. doesn't it? Because like a footballer will sometimes be quite public about yeah. the fact that the people are mispronouncing his name. Or there'll be, I see this often with the Guardian podcast, they'll start properly pronouncing the name and then it'll filter through. And then a couple of weeks later, I'll be listening, watching <laughs> BT or something and they'll be like, oh, he's, he's not saying the name the same way anymore. He's saying it the way that they've been saying it on that on that podcast. Yeah. So you sort of see the sort of shifts and changes. And you, you just, you, I always just wish that there were more of a commitment in, in England to accuracy on this front rather than... Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, making it easier. It's not really about making it easier. And mm. there are very few names that are really, really, really difficult. You know, I gave you the example earlier that is one you have to think about a bit. But um, yeah, it's it's. You mentioned earlier players. Players sometimes can lead us up the the wrong path with this. Um, you'll remember the player. Uh, he was at Schalke actually, so we can talk about about your club, mm-hmm. Simon. Um, Zayad Kolasinac, who mm-hmm. who okay, went yeah. to. Uh, England. Now, he'd given a couple of interviews. The interesting thing about Kolasinac was that, of course, he played for Bosnia-Herzegovina, but grew up in Germany. So he had two pronunciations in Germany, which he spoke about. And he said, yeah, it, it's um, Kolasinac uh, in the Bosnian world, and it's um, Kolasinac auf Deutsch. But then he went, to, and, but he also mm-hmm. said, he said, the one that really um, nerfed me, that really gets on my nerves, mm-hmm. is uh, Kolasinac. He goes, it's absolutely not Kolasinac. So he went to Arsenal and then did a video and said, my name is Sead Kolasinac, you know? So oh. he actually said, my name is the name that, that, that nerfed me, that, that gets on my nerves. Um, and that's, that's something as a commentator you can't do anything about. And people will sometimes mm. use mm. that against you. They'll say, well, look what he's saying now. And you're saying, no, but he... What usually happens is an agent gets involved and says, it might be good for your mm-hmm. image if you anglicize this a little bit, which mm-hmm, I think is mm-hmm, horrible mm-hmm. advice because, you know, what kind of respect is that showing to the, the guy's family, you know, to his, mm-hmm. to his actual heritage? Yeah. I, I will say, if we were in a different culture, and I'm sure, Nick, your, your last name has, has been pronounced wrongly a few times, you know? <laughs> yeah, my entire life, <laughs> yeah, yes, yeah. indeed. But, but there's nothing wrong with you saying, no, actually, this is how I pronounce my name, mm. you know? And, and we should mm. all have the, the confidence to stand up for that. And the majority of people, once they hear what the correct pronunciation is, will be only too mm. happy to, to adhere to that and, and show you due respect. Yeah, yeah. I think, I mean, it's, I, I realized at a very early age that this was going to be a running theme for the rest of my life. Yeah. And I was just like, <laughs> well, some people I will correct. But I mean, one of the things, uh, well, one of the other things I was thinking about is the, the common mispronunciations. Because there's two, like whenever I see an umlaut, yeah. I'm terrified because I know my dialect <laughs> is going to screw it up somehow because I can't, I just can't get the earth sound quite as well. So we'd have, uh, you'd have um, even Muller, yeah. Muller yeah. is one that's th- that's deceptively hard, but also um, Ötzel was, uh, um, was the other one that was always deceptively hard because I'd always screw the uh, uh bit up yeah. um, and I'd always, I'd always go too low or, or too, to the, too much to the, uh, to the sort of left as it were yeah. with the uh, pronunciation. Is there any other mispronunciations that I'm probably making that I should correct with German footballers' names. No, I, 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 I listen, you're, you're doing great with that stuff with what you've just discussed. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah. No, no but, but the one that used to, the one that used to, it's interesting you mentioned the uh sound over yeah. an, an umlaut. Um, mm. When I was a young person, I used to get really annoyed because I would hear, you know, the West German team of the time and one of the greatest players of his generation, Rudi Füller, um, mm-hmm. in, in the UK was always known as Rudi Voller. 
you know? Yeah, follow, yeah. Yeah, I, yeah, I, yeah. I would say, well, why is somebody not telling them that they are completely mispronouncing this name? There's a huge difference between Fura and Voller. Mm. You know, it's, it's, it's barely recognizable. Um, mm-hmm. And to me, that was just a lie. And, you know, some really good commentators were, were doing that at that time. And mm. um, the problem was that if you actually, I remember I went on, I went on air and called him Rudy Fuller and I had producers asking me, why are you calling him that? And I said, because that's his name, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and they would say, well, we've never heard it said that way before. And I said, do you speak German? No. I said, well, okay, you know, don't argue with me. Um, and, and I think you, you have to be a little, I think, I do think you have to be a little bit belligerent in my world with that kind of stuff because yeah. The idea that somebody who doesn't speak another language is going to tell mm. somebody who does speak that language fluently how you pronounce a name, if you think about it, it's, it's just more than a bit perverse. I'm so used to it now. I'm like, yeah. isn't everyone's names mispronounced, you know? Like, <laughs> obviously not Obviously not Simon. Uh, I, I get Maddox, Maddox. Oh, you get Maddox. Interesting. Yeah, there's a lot of Maddox. Yeah. Uh, stress on the second half. Nobody guesses that it's a, a U sound. Yeah. Uh, Maddox. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and yeah, Simon. I'm always called Simon. Simon yeah, mm-hmm. that's okay. Simon, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I've had Rai a lot down the years, um, but mm-hmm. you know, I, I always, always correct it, and, and I've never had anybody say, "Oh, why are you correcting me?" You know, because I think people do want to get it right. I mean, m- more Germans get my name right than British people. That's that's something I've learned over the over the well, years. Well, I think one of the issues with your name is that in the UK there are two or three different possible pronunciations of the um, of the mm. name. So it's, uh, and I think in the northeast of England as well, it, it sometimes mm. gets when I when I think about the um the the england player um steph who has the same uh last name as you yeah 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 she says it in a slightly different way um, but she says the same way i would is it steph houghton isn't it so it's it's not steph horton right yeah and and it's interesting she's i think she's from durham yeah so that i'm always like i haven't looked at it but maybe we're related yeah. <laughs> because we're the only ones who say it the same way everyone else would say horton so it's always like a signal yeah that, oh maybe there's like a family connection there i i i had just on on the subject of, of pronunciations i remember during the last world cup i had to tell a lot of my american colleagues i was working for the fox network at the world cup and they were hearing english people pronounce the name of um the the then right wing back um and hearing them saying uh kieran trippier Trippier. Oh right, so, yeah, yeah. So, so you know, the English way with where they are is barely pronounced, and mm. uh, uh, some of my American colleagues were prone to uh, copying this and saying, "So you know, the ball is played down to Kieran Trippier, you know, and and, yeah. <laughs> and it it doesn't sound doesn't sound right because an American is not doing that with the R sound. They they would say yeah. Trippier, you know. So yeah, yeah, exactly. So yeah, it, yeah. it's um, yeah, it's an interesting one. As one of the most significant voices of the FIFA game franchise since the 2019 version, how does it feel to know that games in bedrooms and living rooms across the world are punctuated by commentary and banter between you and Stuart Robson? Is it, is it an odd feeling? I imagine it might be. Yeah, it, it took a bit of getting used to that one. <laughs> and, um, you know, as you say, I've been doing it since FIFA 19. I was first approached in December of 2017 about being part of... EA Sports FIFA. And I think it did go through my head that things were going to change, that my work was going to be exposed to many more people, especially younger people who probably didn't know my work as mm-hmm. well, because I've worked around the world, um, have worked in the UK, but not exclusively, and more often in other countries than in the UK. And obviously, it's a world 
franchise, you know. So, um, you know, the, the the commentary is as important to somebody in Botswana as it is mm-hmm. to somebody in England or in the USA or in Australia, and um, that's the beauty of it. So, yeah, I, I try not to think about that when I'm voicing it, and we've actually been voicing it quite recently as as we speak now, and it's a lot of work. It's it's usually more than twenty days a year in a studio, not. Not wow, all, wow. not all in one rip. You know, with a couple of days here, a couple of days there, we space it out over the course of the year. But um, yeah, it definitely is something that that is there in the in the minds that um, many people are playing this. And I do try to tell people, you know, or remind people, I'm not actually in your living room physically commentating. <laughs> so that if, if I'm a little bit unkind, a little bit harsh with my words, if my tone is a bit scolding, you know. Please take that into account. I'm not, you know, deliberately trying to be nasty to you with my, my commentary. <laughs> Get, getting random r- random tweets from around the world with people saying, oh, how could you say this about Oh, I, I, I've had that many a time, yeah. I've had, I've had many people say that, saying, you were so rude to me um, last night. I can't, I can't believe it. You know, so I'm sorry. Please forgive me. <laughs> I mean, the, the quality of, of not only your commentary, but the way it's layered mm-hmm. into the game, especially in the latest version, it is... It's incredible how how real it feels and how every single moment does feel like it's it's not just a generic sound file being played. Mm-hmm. There are interruptions that are natural. It's really it's an incredible sensation uh, in the new version, especially. Well, well, thank you for that, Simon. Thank you. And I, I know the production team, and it's a very small production team that I work with, they'll be delighted to hear that because they're the ones who put so much time and effort into it. You know, we we experiment a lot during it. We work on different things and we see, you know, we'll, we'll say to ourselves, let's try it this way. Will this work? Will that work? Um, you know, little bits and pieces, um, little techniques that we use to try to mm. improve it every year. And yeah, I mean, it, it's a hard thing to get right. It's not an easy thing to get right because it is trying to match up and simulate um, what's actually happening on the pitch and, and having enough coverage so that it does sound authentic. And yeah, that's part of the challenge. Well, one of the things that I love is when the when there's like a goal flash from another game, but yeah. then you're like running up the pitch and it cuts out. Yeah. And then there's like the bit where you apologize to the person and you go, oh, I'm sorry to have cut you off, but there's been a goal for the Pine <laughs> game. And I'm just like, I just love that bit. It's one of my favorite bits of commentary. It always makes me laugh. Well, that, and that, that's, I'm glad you've highlighted that one because that's a more recent feature that we've introduced in, in the last uh, couple of FIFAs. Yeah, the interrupt um, part of it. And uh, yeah, we, we have a bit of fun doing that. You know, when With Stuart Robson, my, my partner on it, we have a bit of, yeah, bit of a tremendous. laugh when we're we're uh, cutting each other off and being able to being able to do it with a bit of glee. <laughs> yeah, excellent. Yeah, do you have much influence over the language used? I mean, are you given a set of phrases and you can say this, this isn't something I would say? It, it, it's a collaborative effort, and um, okay. we're not. But I'm not given a list of uh, you know phrase here, phrase there. It's more a conceptual thing. So it's more. I'll get a, a, a description in a few sentences of what the scenario is. You know, it might be that um, a player is taking a shot from, you know, from a long way out. It might just say long range shot, but comfortably wide of the target, you know. And so they'll say, can you come up with 10 things that you would say uh, under those circumstances? Wow. Mm-hmm. And that's when you just kind of, you know, I, I don't prepare any of that. That's just something that we we do. Basically, I'll, I'll have a look at the script. And I'll go, right, okay, I'll take a few seconds. All right, let's go. And uh, and 
that's how they like it. They like it to be as organic as possible. You know, what what would I mm-hmm. say uh, authentically in a game? So so that's what we strive for is to come up with as many phrases like that that would be me rather than somebody else concocting it and me delivering it. So so that's kind of what we do, and it changes all the time, and we refresh things as often as we can so that if. You know, if we have that scenario that I mentioned, and maybe the the phrases are getting a bit old, then we'll do some new ones. You know, for in, for a particular year. Yeah, what's great about it is that it allows me to. I mean, I, I've never I said earlier, I've never been a trained actor, but I've always quite liked the idea of being a commentator in a drama. And you, you, I sort of feel like I get to be myself in this ongoing drama that is uh, EA Sports FIFA, because for a lot of people, it is the ultimate drama. You know, it's what, what they're using as their own form of drama every day of the week or, or maybe once a week. And um, it's great fun. I mean, yeah, there is there's drama in living rooms and bedrooms <laughs> yeah. up and down yeah. the nation, and you're the voice of it. It's an incredible thing. There was certainly drama on uh, Saturday, eh, Simon, when we were playing. <laughs> Yeah, historically, I, I'm the dominant player, but Nick had a very good day ah. the other day. I will give him that. Yeah, you were you were very complimentary about my striker, Derek. Phew. So thanks for breathing that. a big yeah. sigh of relief. <laughs> Just as well, isn't it? Uh, so we are, of course, a podcast about Germany, uh, and as much as we would happily talk and talk and talk about all things football, all things FIFA, we'd be missing a chance to not talk about yeah our adopted home. Uh, you're not only a voice that has espoused good things about the Bundesliga, uh, but Germany as a whole as well. Um, so I guess the first question, what do you enjoy most when you come to Germany? I can say, first of all, that whenever I arrive on German soil, I have a big smile on my face. I, I can't explain that, <laughs> but I usually touch down at uh, Frankfurt Airport and I walk to the um, Fernbahnhof, the, the long-distance railway station, and it's like sort of being home to me, you know? So th- the things I enjoy, I enjoy the people, I enjoy the language, I enjoy the the culture. I enjoy the precise nature of Germany. I'm, I'm somebody who, I know that this is, um, you know what I'm talking about here, but I, but I enjoy the fact that in Germany, the rules are very clear and the language is quite technical and that there is not much ambiguity when it comes to, you know, how things are spelled out. And um, I, I, I just enjoy walking in Germany, especially. I enjoy walking and watching and, and imbibing the culture. And it doesn't matter which city I'm in or which, you know, rural area I'm in. I find that everything has its own um, place and its own way of being. And, you know, of course, I enjoy the culinary culture. I I enjoy German food a lot, I have to say. Uh, I enjoy German beer um, because, Mm -hmm. again, it's different according to where you are in Germany. And in all, I I would say I enjoy just being able to catch up with the the other side of me, if you like, which goes all the way back to the Mm. seven-year-old kid, you know, in Aberdeen watching the World Cup. And Germany has been this sort of constant companion that I switch in and out of. But increasingly nowadays, I'm permanently switched on to because of covering the Bundesliga. Mm -hmm. And that's why uh, no matter where I am, I tend to get up uh, at the equivalent of about, you know, 
eight o'clock or nine o'clock German time to, to follow the news <laughs> in the morning. To uh, that mm-hmm. tends to be the, 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 the way I work. If I'm in the United States, I tend to get up ridiculously early and go to bed ridiculously early and follow a German schedule. So that probably says everything. <laughs> <laughs> That's fantastic. Yeah. Um, I mean, you mentioned the differences in the sort of the urban and the rural and, and the different areas, but there's something that me and Simon often talk about is this idea that Germany is rather like 16 different countries yeah. and that you've seen a lot of the of the country clearly would you agree with that statement yeah very much I, I think people underestimate federalism and what it means for germany and it is very much like that and i think during the the pandemic we've seen that you know with different lender having different rules uh, yeah, exactly, in place yeah. and that was a bit perplexing to people i know in the united kingdom who couldn't quite get their heads around that even in the UK people seem to have a problem that Scotland would somehow do things differently Mm -hmm. than England and I'll say well if Mm -hmm. you think that's strange you know go to Germany where you have these 16 different (laughs) vendors that are all doing it their own way and (laughs) and that's normal in a in a federal structure of course so yeah I, I think so and I think that People think there is a bit of a monoculture in Germany, and and there's not. You know, you only need to think of, you know, Bayern, for example, where you live, Nick, which has mm-hmm. its own distinct culture, and. Um, you think about, I was in Hamburg recently, having not been there for quite some time. And there's a completely different culture that I think in many respects is much more reminiscent of, um, you know, Scandinavian culture. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to say it's, it's like Scandinavia, but possibly closer to that than what you would see in, in Bayern. And then, you know, a place like Kern that uh, is very much its own kind of independent city with its own joie de vivre and influences. And, you know, Berlin of course is unlike anywhere else in, in Germany, you know, <laughs> no, yeah. and the, that extends to the, the linguistic considerations as well as to the attitude of the people who can sometimes be a little bit kind of, uh, you know, sort of... Um, yeah, the, the schnauzer. Yeah, <laughs> a little bit, but you kind of laugh along with that. And, and that's mm-hmm. what I love is that every area has its own character and um, long may that continue. Uh, so, of course, one of the, the important things about German culture mm. is its music. Yeah. And, of course, therein, Schlager. Tell us about your love for Schlager. When who did it start with, and is it still is is it still good today? Well, I um, it's probably not as good as it used to be, to be honest. But I remember in when I first went to Germany in the early eighties, I remember I in those days, of course, we had old-fashioned records that we used to put on record players. And I, I remember I came back with um, basically the, uh, the, the the Schlager from that year, from 82 and then 83, and, um, you know, Wie den Wind von Palermo and all these, these uh, songs of the time. So, yeah, the Schlager of that point was a little bit, it was even cheesier than the, the, the Schlager music that you would hear nowadays. But um, that was my first exposure to it, and... Every year I went to Germany, I'd come back with the the, the, mm-hmm. the, the best uh, Schlager hits of the year. But I sort of moved then to <laughs> I, 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 I then moved to more um, you know to the the Udo Lindenberg type um, mm-hmm. you know musical influences and mo- modern talking. Do you remember modern talking? Pro- uh, modern yeah. talking who were around. I'm saying it with a German accent because they were a, a German band <laughs> um, with an English title. You know, so modern talking and um, uh, they had a, a few hits at that time as well. And uh, so, yeah, that, that was kind of my first exposure to, to German music. But Schlager culture is, I think, something you just have to kind of open your, your eyes and your mind to and, and enjoy mm-hmm. the 
the distinctive <laughs> sounds that may not be to everybody's taste, but uh, but they are part of Germany. Yeah, I've been trying for over a decade, <laughs> and it's just it's not it's not clicked. It really hasn't. They had the summer fest on TV, I think, at the weekend, and it was like an acid trip. Yeah, like the whole thing's just <laughs> like people are clapping along. They're driving a truck through the middle of the stage. There's people like dancing in cars, and it was just like, what am I watching? Like, what am I hearing? But yeah, it's it's really distinctive, though. It's really sort of special. I yeah, think. and and of course, you know, it's not so much Schlager, but in Köln, you know, they have their own musical culture, which is you know, centered around carnival time. And um, you know, anybody in Köln, if if you mention the Blackfuss, you know, that's a, a an old time Köln band who sing in the Kirsch dialect, and um, that is again just something that every Köln person knows. And mm. uh, most regions have that same kind of cultural affinity in musical terms okay so if you could export something german back home whether it be a product a piece of culture or just a concept uh what would it be and how would it improve things i i'm going to take back because this is a funny one because this comes down to um this is a football expression so i'm going to go with the concept the concept of mm-hmm. planungssicherheit i'm going to take back planungssicherheit basically the sec- the security <laughs> of planning um mm-hmm. which which i think is I, and i love explaining to people who don't know about german football how why this is so important for german football clubs you don't really hear english football clubs talk about yeah we need the security of planning this summer you know they're just basically <laughs> spending money you know they're not mm-hmm. sort of you know maybe they they do have this planungssicherheit uh concept in their heads but um but that would be the concept that i would i'd probably take back and then um the, the other one would be i think would have to be the the beer culture because i i don't think beer is as good <laughs> anywhere as it is in germany and i'm lucky because i i do have uh, I'm, I'm a big kirsch drinker uh not a big drinker but it's my favorite german beer and i have a, a supplier who can get me uh Gaffer and Reisdorf Kirsch, mm-hmm. and it's a wonderful thing. So, so I guess that is something that that I do have access to here. Um, so, yeah. So, with that, could you also then export the idea of drinking a meter of a beer? <laughs> right? A meter of Kirsch is a pretty unusual. I leave thing. that to those of you in in Bayern, you know, to to uh, to, to drink the the big glasses of beer. Of course, with Kirsch, it's the it's the tiny miniature um, mm. servings, mm-hmm. and you just keep on, um, you know loading up on on one after another so it's good um we've got one more question then um yeah what's your favorite word in german and how difficult do you find the language to learn compared to the others that you've learned well i'll answer the second part first of all Uh, it was the first language that i learned and so uh, in many respects that might have been a, a a good thing you know that i that i learned that first because i didn't realize how difficult it is, you know. So to me, that was just the language I learned, and I probably assumed that all languages were were similar. Not really knowing that, you know, if you try to learn German as an adult, it's much harder. I can only imagine what it's like trying to learn it as an adult. I was lucky enough to be able to um, to learn that one, you know, when I was when I was very young. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I say it came quite naturally to me. I, I I think in German a lot. I dream in German a lot, you know. Which uh, especially when when I'm in Germany, I find that I, I after a day or so, I'm pretty much I have to I have to consciously think about what I'm saying in English because I'm mm. I'm sort of in this German world. Um, oh, that's a great place to be. Yeah, yeah. it's it's it, it first <laughs> that realization hit me when I first was a language student in this little place called uh, Wildeck Obersul, right on the border of the two Germanys, right. So, 
when I say right on the border, you could see the East German border guards just a hundred meters away. That's when it kind of it all sort of clicked because there was no English being spoken there at all, and and that helped me greatly. But my favorite word, the one I, I like to use a lot, and it's kind of a um, a, a word that you know you can throw into everyday speech, but it's it's a typically long German word, which is nichts desto trotz. Nichts desto trotz is my favorite is one of my favorite German words, and um, I don't know if you if you know that words or, or not, but um, so so nichts desto trotz basically is nevertheless, you know. But it's one mm-hmm. of these words that you'll hear politicians use it a lot. You'll hear football coaches use it a lot all the time, you know. Ja, wir haben sehr gut gespielt. Nichts desto trotz haben wir Luft nach oben. We have room for improvement, you know. So we played well, but nevertheless, you know, there's there's room for improvement. Um, so yeah, nichts desto trotz. There you go. Wow, fantastic. Well, um, I I can't thank you enough, Derek, for joining us on the podcast. Yeah, it's really. been tremendous. It's been a wonderful, wonderful conversation. Real treat. Well, thank thank you both for the invitation, and more power to both of you. And uh, yeah, I'm thrilled to to see what you're doing and trying to raise awareness about German culture as two guys who who are living it every day. And um, yeah, hopefully we one of these days we'll catch up in person on our respective travels. Oh, that would be delightful. That would be incredible. <laughs> <laughs> that would be would be would be pretty massive. Well, they're looking really threatening here. It comes to Maddox and Maddox with a deft cross and Houghton. He's only gone and scored. Decades from home with the victory. Hallo zusammen. Servus, Lana. That brings us to the end of the show. We're off to enjoy even more time with Derek and play a marathon session of FIFA 22. Newcastle versus Tottenham on repeat. Come on, the tune! If you're enjoying the podcast, why not give us a rating on iTunes? It only takes a minute and can really, really help us. You can also now give star ratings on Spotify, so chuck some stars our way if you feel so inclined. Retweet us, share a link, or post with the hashtag Decades From Home, all lowercase, on Twitter or on Instagram. You can also support the podcast by going to ko-fi.com forward slash Decades From Home and contributing to keep us well stocked in the latest iterations of all major football and computer games. As ever, if you have any questions, feedback, or maybe an article or topic you'd like us to cover, you can tweet Simon on at Decades From Home and you can tweet me at 40% German. You can also get us on 40% German at gmail.com. If you have any time, take a look at 40percentgerman.com. Weekly articles are up every Saturday. All that's left to say is thanks and bis zum nächsten Mal. Tschüss. Tschüss. Ade, ne? No?